Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of Snake Oilers, the podcast we do here at Risky Biz HQ that lets sponsors pitch their products to you, the Risky Business listener. And uh, to be crystal clear, everyone you hear in a Snake Oilers interview paid to be here. It is a sponsored podcast. Uh, and we're going to hear from three vendors in this edition, Island. Uh, they make an enterprise browser and uh, like I think they have a decent chance at being huge uh, because... You know, we talk about the browser being the new operating system, but there hasn't been a great deal of movement in terms of someone making an enterprise grade one. Uh, and that's what Island does. Yeah, so stick around for that one. The use cases for an enterprise browser are basically endless. You've got DLP, you've got BYOD stuff, uh, step up auth, you know, field redaction, you name it. Like there's a lot you can do. And I think, yeah, Island is the biggest big idea we've had heard pitched uh, on snake oilers in in, in in a while so yeah don't miss that one uh, we're also going to hear from panther today panther is a cloud native seam platform built by former practitioners so they handle high volume high velocity log sources and uh, you can even write your own real-time detections for their platform in python right so this is like serious seam sort of thing. Uh, that, that's an interesting one as well. Uh, but first up, we're going to hear from Travis McPeak. Uh, Travis was on the show in a feature interview years ago when he worked for Netflix. And he was talking about, uh, what was it called? Repo Kid, which was a like a cloud permissions harvester uh, that would remove permissions that were unused from cloud resources. Uh, but yeah, he has a startup now. It is called Resourcely. And that was inspired by some other work he and his colleagues did at Netflix. Now, basically, Resourcely lets you provision cloud resources at scale with Terraform in a not insane way. So here is Travis McPeak explaining Resourcely. Resourcely is really a productized approach to what we call paved roads at Netflix. So you're a security engineer and you want to prevent misconfigurations. Um, what security engineers will typically do is come to developers and say, hey, you screwed that up. You need to go fix it. At Netflix, this was not an option for us. Our job at Netflix was to run along as fast as we can with our developers and support them. And what we want to do is make it so that the easiest way for a developer to get whatever they need also has security baked in from, from the ground up. So what a lot of companies do for cloud security today is they'll have these scanners, cloud security posture management, that will come and say, hey, you misconfigured your S3 bucket or your database or whatever. But the time you get something in a scan, it's too late. You basically have to go fix it with cloud vuln management. And as an industry, we're terrible at vuln management. So you create a JIRA ticket, you try and track down the developer, tell them, hey, you screwed this up, please go fix it. Uh, these things barely ever get fixed. If they do, it takes a long time. So this is uh, what my friend Jason Chan calls a cycle of pain. What we want to do instead is make it so that you never get the issue in the first place. Now, cloud infrastructure is really complex. In order to actually get something set up correctly, you have to either be an expert or have an expert help you. So what many companies will do is they'll have these central teams responsible for helping developers get a database or a bucket or a subdomain or whatever they need. What Resourcely does is take that expert guidance and just help the developer get it with self-service. So a developer can come to us and say, I want to get a bucket set up. We're going to give them a known good template as a starting place, and we're going to help them fill in the right options and give them this expert security and DevOps and reliability guidance all built into one system. So a developer comes to us, picks their pattern, we help them fill in the right options, and then out of us pops perfect Terraform, written as if the developer that created it was an expert not only in the cloud infrastructure, but also Terraform and also all of your company's policies, standards, best practices, and everything. So how flexible is something like this, right? Because quite often when I've heard similar pitches to this, you know, you think, well, isn't this just going to crap out 
all stuff that kind of mostly looks the same with a few options tweaked? Like, you know, how, how actually flexible is it for different environments? Yeah, so we, we have a, a growing catalog of blueprints. The blueprints are a good starting place. Really where the power of the platform comes in is with guardrails. So a guardrail for us is a way that a central team can define what do they want to be true about their cloud infrastructure or changes to it. So a guardrail might be anytime I'm creating a bucket, it needs to go in this region because this is where my company puts buckets. Or if I'm creating a database, it needs to be geo-replicated. And here's how you set up geo-replication. So the flexibility of us comes from you match a, a blueprint, this starting place, with the guardrails that you want to apply to it. And both the blueprints and the guardrails and the mapping between them, that's all configurable by a company for us. So these blueprints don't have to be catch-all. You can apply guardrails to it and configure it however you want in your company. So why don't you walk us through like, you know, typical use cases, right? Because like what you described, very cool, uh, but somewhat generic, a little bit difficult to get your hands around, which is like, yeah, we can generate, we can spin up good, you know, uh, Terraform cloud infra for you with guardrails. Okay, that's great. Give us some concrete examples. Sure. So let's say that I'm a developer and I want to back up my application with a bucket. So the, the actual S3, for example, Amazon's bucket service has 70 settings that you can set in there. I actually counted it one time for a presentation. So nobody knows how to set all of these things. Even if you're an expert in cloud infrastructure, you don't know what all these things are. So a backup bucket is configured for exactly that. We're gonna have it so that it automatically backups your files, versioning's turned on, it's going to log, it's gonna have strong authentication built into it. All of the stuff that you want it to have comes in this pattern. So really developers don't need to know anything about the infrastructure, they just pick this pattern and then they're able to pick the specific options for their case. For example, in the backup bucket case, how long do you want to actually keep this data in the bucket before moving it to cheaper storage? Um, you want to move it to cheaper storage, of course, for cost savings. So we have that pattern built into it, and all a developer picks is the, the specific parameters there. How long until they're moving it over? Where should we put the logs? Things like that. In fact, we don't even want developers to think about where logs go. A company should be able to set that up. So anybody that gets a bucket, it's logging to your central location and developers don't even need to be aware of the logging. So, so I see what you mean when you're talking about these blueprints, right? And, and I've got a better idea now, which is that you might pull up a blueprint that says S3 backup bucket, basically, right? Like uh, configure this for as I, as I, I configure this service as this thing. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Another yeah. case here. So in a lot of compute cases at Netflix, we would want to put an identity or a proxy in front of it. So identity aware proxy in front of your whatever your workload is has a ton of good benefits in there. You can put authentication and authorization. Developers don't need to know how to set this up. You can put a WAF in front of it. You can do logging. And all of this we did actually deploy at Netflix. Um, so developers got this for free. Uh, this is one of the patterns in our catalog. So you just say, I want to run a VM and I want that VM to be completely fronted by this identity aware proxy. And then you know that developers aren't going to be able to set it up so it's open to the internet. If it is, then you can have a guardrail that says, I want to approve anything that's open to the internet on top of it. But most of the time, developers just get this strong authentication built in for free. That's interesting too, because one of the, well, the big issue with identity aware proxies is that they're a pain in the ass to configure. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you can think that you have an identity aware proxy set up well, but you missed something and now it's not doing what you want. So we will have a good pattern. You don't have to worry about it. You just get that for free. And then we have guardrails to monitor the configuration of that and make sure that you don't accidentally put it in a configuration that's not doing what you want it to do. 
Yeah, yeah. So what sort of customers, you know, what sort of shops are showing interest in this type of thing? I mean, you know, you came out of Netflix. That's not your typical enterprise environment, right? So um, I can imagine with a lot of these things, the need for stuff like this starts at those sort of companies and then trickles down. You know, where, where are you seeing interest for this? Yeah. So at Netflix, we had to build things ourselves a lot just out of necessity. The market wasn't mature enough to support what we needed. Uh, why I'm excited about Resourcely is we want to bring this power of you know the good things that we had at Netflix to companies without them needing to invest in building it themselves. What I've found is that these cloud patterns, the good best practices, blueprints and guardrails, these are all relatively commodity. Everybody relatively wants the same properties. And so we can offer these to our customers as a menu. We can just say, here's a bunch of blueprints. You pick whichever ones of these are most relevant for your environment, and then you can do that last mile configuration. Same thing with guardrails. We don't even want you to have to staff the people to know what a good guardrail is. We're gonna give you this big menu of guardrails for security, reliability, best practices, compliance, all of these things. And you can just pick out of our menu and say, I want this, this, and this, and this is the specific way that we configure it here. I'll give you another example of a guardrail. Uh, many companies want to use a golden image. So that could be a guardrail. If a developer is doing any kind of compute, we're going to suggest that they use the golden image. If they're not using the golden image, then they're, we're gonna loop in somebody that can help them with an exception or to guide them back onto the paved path. Or instance types. Some companies for cost savings or standards or other reasons wanna use certain instance types. So here as a company, you can say, this is an instance types guardrail. At this company, we only use these instance types and then developers will just get that right answer for free. They don't even have to worry about instance types. They just get a drop down menu of the right answers that they can pick one. And I, I see why you're calling them guardrails because you're not, I think when you're giving people choice like that, it doesn't really feel like it's being shoved down their throat either, right? Which makes it a much more friendly option for most people who are going to be using it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So at Netflix, we didn't have, you know, there's the carrot and the stick for a security team. And at Netflix, practically speaking, we didn't have the stick. All we had was the carrot. So we can offer you something better to a, to a developer and we want them to want to use it. So the, the power of a paved road is really not that you're making everyone use it, but it's such a better way of getting whatever you want to have set up that you prefer to use it. So developers, if we're nailing the experience here, developers are telling their developer friends, hey, go use this. It's much easier to get your infrastructure set up. You don't have to talk to the security team. You don't have to wait for DevOps to come and help you. You just get your infrastructure and you get back to work quickly. So what do you support uh, so far with this, right? Because there is an awful lot there is an awful lot of cloud stuff out there, Travis. <laughs> you can't be supporting all of it, right? But I'd imagine it's the it's the major stuff for now, right? Yeah, so what we started with is AWS and GCP. We have blueprints for the common resource type. So, you know, if we had to support all 250 or whatever AWS services, we'd be in for a long haul here. Um, By the way, I, do, I, I did find it funny when you were talking about the 77 different configurable options for S3, when S3 literally stands for simple storage service. But anyway, <laughs> it all become, starts off simple. I don't, think it's, simple. I don't think it really qualifies. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it should be S2, storage service. But anyway, go on. <laughs> they've, they've honorarily removed the symbol from it. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so I found that uh, fortunately, most companies tend to use about 10 or 15 services a lot. And then there's a very long tail of other services that you're using. So we're starting with the common services that everybody uses. The other thing is we support importing Terraform modules. So what many of our customers have done is gone down the path of creating Terraform modules that have good practices baked in. If you don't have Resourcely, that's really the best you can do is just give your developers a module that they can fill in. And so you can take Resourcely and import your modules that you already have. 
And on top of that, we can suggest guardrails and we can help the developers fill in the right properties. So we're doing a combination of supporting what our customers are already using and then also giving them new patterns so they don't have to create new modules. And I imagine this is all just a SaaS service, right? Um, and then you give it access to your cloud services so that it can do the thing instead of just spitting out configuration files that you take to do the thing? Yeah, so what we do is we integrate into your source control, so GitHub or whatever, and we'll actually create a pull request on behalf of the developer that has the, the new infrastructure that they want to create in Terraform in the pull request. So we actually don't need much access to a cloud environment at all. You just integrate us into your CI pipeline and we'll help you to yeah. create Terraform PRs. Well, and that's your sanity check point, right? To make sure nothing screwy is going on. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of our early customers, at least, are big companies, not the kind of companies that are going to take you know, a tiny company like us and say, here, have God mode in our cloud accounts. So what we do is we're just helping to create PRs. Now, as I mentioned at the intro, you're former Netflix. And um, this whole thing was sort of inspired by an open source project that spun out of Netflix, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Netflix, like many other companies in 2014, was trying to respond to Heartbleed. Heartbleed, as you'll remember, leaked potentially private key material for certificates. And so Netflix, like many other companies, was trying to find where are the private keys and how do we rotate them? They realized at the time, we don't actually know where the private keys are. We don't know where these certificates are stored. And so what Netflix did was create Lemur. And Lemur helps developers to get microservice certificates. So if you think about a world without Lemur, a developer has to jump through all kinds of hoops to get a simple certificate. They have to select a cipher suite. So now they're dealing with cryptography. Developers don't want to worry about cryptography. They have to generate a private key. They have to generate a certificate. They have to get the certificate over to their load balancer. And then they have to remember to rotate it every year before it expires and takes down their service. You're going so, to make me cry because this is somewhat triggering to someone who runs their own website. But anyway, it's, go on, it's especially with a CDN, a CDN distributed audio product. But anyway, go on. You don't want to worry about cryptography? I don't understand. <laughs> so with Lemur, all of that complexity is replaced by press a button, tell Lemur what your app is, and it will handle getting the certificate, getting the cryptography set up, and actually rotating it every time before it expires. So it's really nice for a developer. Instead of this giant research project, they just get whatever they were trying to get done. And for security, it's great because now you know who owns which certificates. You know that the private keys are managed well. You know the rotation is going to happen. So it's really one of the true win-wins that developers and security get in working with each other. And I guess this is just the same, but for everything else, not just certificates. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Resourcely is this pattern, but applied to all cloud infrastructure. Yeah. All right. Well, Travis McPeak sounds like very interesting stuff. Uh, I understand you've just come out of stealth mode. So people can go to your website and actually have a look and see what it is that you do and try to actually uh, take, take the product out for a spin. Uh, do you do any uh, free, free trials or anything like that? We are willing to be flexible for the right partners. So if somebody's interested in this, they're dealing with all of this ops load and they want to have a proactive approach, come talk to me and we'll figure something out. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Travis. And uh, yeah, we'll be talking to you again throughout the year. Cheers. Thank you. That was Travis McPeak there with a chat about Resourcely. Find them at resourcely.io, spelled R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-L-Y.io. Our second snake oiler today is Panther, and Panther has created a new cloud-native seam that actually sounds very compelling. Cloud-based seams are surprisingly new, really. It's hard to imagine that the major cloud provider seam platforms, they've only been around since 2019. Uh, so yeah, this is still a relatively new 
thing. Um, and, uh, you know, what we've got here is a cloud-based seam that wasn't developed by one of the major cloud platforms. Instead, uh, the company was founded by a former security brain from Airbnb. And yeah, the pitch here is pretty compelling. So here's Ken Weston, the field CISO from Panther, uh, pitching Panther to you. So uh, basically, Panther is sim reimagined really for the cloud. Uh, it was uh, developed in the cloud um, and it's really for the cloud, uh, particularly when we were dealing with high volume, high velocity log sources. Um, that a lot of the, sort of the legacy sims really struggle with, or if you do try to ingest it, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, we're really designed to be much more efficient with how we, we bring in those log sources, whether it's from a cloud infrastructure, um, uh, web applications, or even custom logs. Uh, we're really um, set up to, to make the, the sim easier for particularly like developers and things like that. Um, you know, we always see like a lot of sims were good at protecting for corporate security, bringing in firewalls and things like that. But when you start trying to bring in application logs, when you're when you have sort of your customers' environments and things like that, when you're protecting their data, the the log uh, volume, the velocity, um, it increases exponentially, um, and a lot of times people can't afford it, or the the sort of the technical limitations um, of some of these legacy sims are also an issue, and that's something that Panther was uh, set out to solve. Now, you mentioned legacy seams there, but, um, you know, they're not the only shows in town these days. What about some of these newer cloud-based seams from, um, <clears throat> excuse me, from Google and Microsoft? Why do you have an advantage over them? Yeah, and, you know, a lot of those those um, those solutions are, are great, but they're, they're for their own um, environments. A lot of times people have uh, multi-cloud, they may have some logs in AWS, sometimes they have Azure, they have a bunch of SaaS applications and things like that as well. Um, and one of the challenges too is a lot of times the query languages um, for those different platforms is also proprietary. Um, what we'd actually do is we uh, write our detections and we have the detection as code, which is DAC. Um, and basically uh, we, we um, adopt basically software development lifecycle types of approach um, when we're actually writing detections and you write your detection in Python. Um, or if you're going to do searches and things like that, you can write those in SQL. So that way you don't have to go out and learn some sort of new proprietary query language. Most uh, security teams has have Python and SQL knowledge within their organizations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is still kind of an emerging, like this idea of cloud log seam, right? It is kind of new. And, and, and you know, the detection opportunities there, like how far down the road are we of figuring out like, the most solid use cases for those types of logs because that's something I'm, I'm really interested in because it because it is kind of new you know getting that type of information into a seam um you know are you always finding new things you can do with it i'd imagine at this point you probably still are right yeah i think one challenge too is that you're dealing with the high volume high velocity log sources and being able to actually apply detections in real time like we do where you actually apply our our python detections um, in a serverless architecture before the data is even ingested um, into a security data lake. So we're actually able to act on that uh, much quick, uh, much faster. And a lot of times you may want to have your um, that alert get sent off not to a, like a sim where someone's going to sit there for an hour or maybe two days before anyone gets to it. You can actually leverage those detections um, to uh, trigger automated responses like a, something in a SOAR platform or um, integrate with a Slack bot or something like that to get user input um, almost immediately. And I think uh, particularly when you're dealing with protecting uh, customer infrastructure and things like that, um, it's critically important to be able to um, to re respond quickly, leveraging automation and things like that as well. So, I mean, are you, you're ingest are you ingesting also the typical 
you know, everyday seem stuff like network logs and, you know, domain lookups and all of that good stuff? Yeah, we have, um, actually, we have over 75 different um, integrations, log sources that we ingest. So, and endpoint yeah. as well, like ADR and all of that stuff. Yeah, uh, we actually, yeah, we have uh, all the EDR vendors we support, whether it's pass-through detections or you can write custom detections. Um, so yeah, we, we support all of those platforms. And, and you don't actually host the data lake stuff in your own tech, do you? Like you use Snowflake or AWS or whatever. You're just like the app that sits on top. Yeah, we have an, our application with our detection logic, um, le le leveraging AWS Lambda. So again, serverless, uh, we're, we're leveraging that for our um, real-time detection. And then we also leverage Snowflake as our security uh, data lake on the back end, which is incredibly efficient, um, particularly when it comes to costs associated with long-term data retention. So uh, how, many of, how many of your customers are buying your stuff for the like cloud logging and web application logging side of it versus just a replacement for what you use a legacy scene to do? Like what's the, what's the breakdown there? Um, I have to look at it, but I mean, primarily we have uh, um, most of our initial customers were, were tech companies. Um, you know, uh, Jack Nagdiari, who was our founder, he was at Airbnb, and he really had a lot of challenges with some of the off-the-shelf uh, solutions, uh, particularly when they're dealing with these high-volume log sources. And that's yeah. where um, he developed StreamAlert, um, and that's where um, Panther was actually born as a result of that, which is kind of interesting. You know, we, we actually come from a practitioner like yeah. that was actually doing secure, hard security work. Uh, writing amazing detections, right? And the, the platform he had just didn't support it. And and so he built his own. Um, and that's why I think we have had a lot of these tech companies as well that are sort of like the Airbnbs that have adopted us. But, you know, as we start to kind of move in, into the market, we're also making things easier for um, analysts. So you don't have to know Python. We do no code. We do low code, things like that as well. So we can actually address a lot of those um, additional use cases that some of the legacy sims still have. So is that like a pointy, clicky, Tynes style interface when it comes to the no-code stuff? Yeah, uh, we're starting that with particularly when you're look, you're going through your data. You know, sometimes you don't want to have to write SQL queries. Um, you just want to analyze the data and you know figure that out. Um, you know, we have that capability. Whether you're doing threat hunting, um, I've been teaching a workshop where we do verbal teaming, where we actually run offensive security operations um, against uh, Okta infrastructure, for example, and then we go into the logs and we use that to develop a hypothesis for what new detections we can write. So um, it's actually a lot of fun. What sort of stuff are you detecting with these cloud logs by analyzing these cloud logs that you can't get in a normal seam? I think it might be useful to spell that out for the listeners. Yeah, I think, uh, well, like, like Octo would be a good example. Like we can actually do, um, you know, not just the real-time detections, but also leveraging um, SQL to do scheduled searches. So um, for example, we have one safe search that we'll go through and it'll actually identify for password spraying. So not just one uh, user account, you know, trying to guess their password, but when you have multiple usernames trying to uh, guess, you know, across, you know, longer periods of time, it'll actually identify it as an anomaly and then trigger um, an alert based on that. So, so if someone's over, doing low and slow, you'll catch exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Looking over like a, basically a wider aperture, right? So yeah. looking over a wider a window of time, but also looking across a lot of different data sources as well, uh, doing correlation, um, much more sophisticated types of um, analysis. It, it, it's, it's funny, right? Because I got, I got friends at Okta. One of them used to work with us, um, Brett Winifred. And, um, you know, you talk to him about all the wonderful logs that Okta can produce for its customers that they never look at, right? So that is a, that is a good example. <laughs> uh, what, are some other, what are some other ones? Um, well, I think a lot of the, the, the cloud um, types of um, like uh, cloud trail, things like that, a lot of our yeah. um, detections, we have, we actually have um, them organized in packs. I think we have, um, like, I can't remember how many we have now, man, it's like, 
I think it's like over 400 different detections that we actually have that are out of the box. Um, and those are also designed to be um, edited. So it's not like a black box type of situation where you know, you're stuck with our detection. You can actually go in and customize them. Uh, just taught a workshop too where we actually clone them um, to like, for example, with Okta looking for, you know, when someone creates a API key, um, maybe I want to increase the severity depending on who does it or other parameters. Um, just being able to really um, customize those detections for for what we need. Uh, I think and that's you're not a going to find you're not going to find that stuff with a virtual network tap. I mean, that's why I keep coming back to this, right? Is that these these types of detections? They're not detections you can get anywhere else. Correct. Yeah, I mean, there's a you, you can go and you can look at sigma rules and things like that. Of course, you know, there's a, a lot of them that are out there. But I think also what we try to do is focus on the, the detections that matter. Uh, well, it'd be nice times. to do it in in a not incident response context, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, so like, out, right? well, I worked at some of the other sim vendors, and you know, one of the first things that like professional services would do is they would come in and they would disable all of the out of the box detections because a lot of times they were garbage, um, and they would trigger all sorts of false, false positives, and then they would slowly, you know, add them uh, new ones in over time, and then tailor them uh, for that uh, audience, right, or that company. Um, so that's one thing I really like about our detections is they're actually useful and they're they're um, really tuned to reduce false positives, which is, I think, a big differentiator. No one likes false positives. Um, and it just seems like the more data you bring in, the higher volume of false positives you get. So you really need to be able to tailor and customize those um, detections and, and really make sure that they're useful and not just target the, the, the highest volume of detections you can bring into your environment. What about logs being spat out by custom apps? You know, like how easy is it to actually start ingesting them into your platform and then actually building some, you know, just anomaly detect detections and stuff around that? Yeah, we actually we're uh, we're a lot easier to to work with when it comes to logs. We can actually uh, basically drag and drop a log file, and it'll attempt to, to actually create a schema for you. Um, you can then go through and refine that. Um, so it's not quite AI, but you're you're able to actually take those log samples, and it'll actually figure out what the schema is for you. Um, and it just makes that process much easier. Like I was onboarding data and it took me maybe five minutes for like Okta. And then if I want to bring in a custom app, maybe 10 minutes just to kind of uh, tweak the schema a little bit. But um, it's much easier with our platform than I think than some of the others that are out there. All right. Well, Ken Weston, thank you so much for joining us to, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about with something like this, but um, I guess for the people on detection teams out there, uh, they would have heard enough by now to, to see whether they're interested in having a look or not. Um, but it was a pleasure to meet you. Great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again, uh, I am sure. Great. Thanks, Patrick. That was Ken Weston from Panther there with a chat about uh, their cloud native seam. And you can find them at panther.io. It is time for our final snake oiler today, and that is Island. Uh, now, this, this is a big idea. This is a big pitch. Island is an enterprise browser based on Chromium. Uh, the company is funded to the gills and already seeing good adoption out there because it turns out there's a lot you can do with an enterprise browser. Uh, you'll hear a bunch of use cases in this interview, but there are so many more. You know, there are so many, and we just didn't get time to get to all of them. But uh, Island are going to be back in a couple of other sponsored things throughout the year, so you'll, you'll be hearing more from them. Uh, but, you know, with their browser, you can set up rules that allow users to download data from one SaaS service and upload it into another, but not do other stuff with that data that might put it at risk, right? And you can't really do that with some of these DLP solutions that are based on browser extensions, uh, for example, right? So there's just, you know, it's a powerful thing once you get to control the entire browser uh, as like it's an enterprise tool. Um, and, you know, there's use cases here for like 
partners and BYOD, right? So allowing third parties access into your environments uh, and, uh, you know, doing BYOD from a tamper-resistant browser. I mean, that's that's handy as well. Anyway, enough of me being the hype man. Here's my interview with Island's Chief Strategy Officer, Brian Kenyon. Enjoy. So across 70 customers, there's a couple of things that, you know, from a use case perspective, commonalities that certainly rise to the top. Um, what we can see is um, things like unmanaged devices, right? So whether it's BYOD programs or it's things like third-party contractors, the browser is a very viable and lightweight uh, way to get a footprint on an unmanaged device. And one of the great benefits the enterprise browser affords you is the ability to not only just govern what their access and what capabilities the user has inside any browser session, but it also gives you the ability to check the endpoint posture before you grant access or even while you grant access continuously. So you can mandate that the device meets minimum specifications to achieve certain levels of access. And so that doesn't have to necessarily even be binary. In security, we think of things very binary, either you allow or deny. You can actually get, because you control the entire browsing session itself, you can get more granular and say, you don't meet the desired um, system end state, so I'll give you read-only access, or I'll only give you an access to a subset of applications, things like that. So unmanaged devices is a big one. Um, and then we see a lot of usage around um, critical applications. So think about applications that um, house the crown jewels, whether that's a chemical formula for a manufacturing firm, or maybe it's the PII or sensitive information or personal information for financial services or hospitality organization. But the reality is your users are accessing this critical data inside of a browser. And once that data renders to the screen in the browser, the user has a variety of options as to what they want to do with that data and if they actually want to be bad and take it. And so by having an instrumented browser, like you said, an enterprise browser, you now have the flexibility and granularity policy dictating what that data looks like when it renders to the screen and what can the user actually do with it. Can they copy and paste it? Can they print it? Can they take a screen capture of it? All of those operations can be mediated and articulated with policy. So, so the idea might be, say, in a financial services or medical context, in the call center, you know, you can redact certain fields. You can prevent people from being able to uh, screenshot anyway. You can stop them from cut cutting and pasting um, data off those screens. Exactly. Once you understand, like, we are the actual browser itself, you very quickly get by the easy notions of things like, well, you're going to provide single sign-on, you know, easy access to these applications. That's great. And there's huge benefits to that. Believe me, there's a lot of organizations that they're still trying to solve those problems. But once you understand that you control the browser, you're exactly right. What data gets displayed and whether it gets redacted or even emitted from the uh, rendering screen entirely, um, what application functions are available. All of these things can actually be articulated with policy down to an end user group by group, role by role. So it's not one size fits all. So this is, I mean, this is, and I, I understood this uh, by previously talking to people at Island, that this is a huge use case for you. It's essentially like a, you know, data loss prevention um, tool for a lot of the customers who buy it. Yes. And so you're, you're exactly right. DLP or data loss prevention becomes one of the first real, you know, epiphanies that our customers have, which is, you know, when you think about things like how we deliver and how we actually inject DLP into our process today, we typically do it on the wire. 
right? So we're actually trying to break and inspect TLS. And we all know, you know, the lifetime we have on the applicability of break and inspect of an actual web connection. The great thing about having this as an enterprise browser is everything's pre and post encryption flows. So we can actually look at what instructions are being passed to the rendering engine and what things we would like to allow via policy. I mean, to be fair to some of the some of the other players in the DLP space, I mean, they are deploying these days as uh, you know browser plugins, right, and browser extensions and things like that for the same reason. You don't need, right. need to go for a completely new browser to to get that part of it, right? So I'll tell you a little lesson I learned with extensions. And I learned this at my days of actually, as well as my days at Symantec, where from a DLP perspective, the only control and visibility really got inside those browser transactions was via an extension. And the biggest struggle we had from a development perspective is that extension footprint, while it's very, it's very much dictating in Chromium how extensions work and what they're capable of doing, each vendor, like a Google and Microsoft, gets to decide how they want to implement that extension landscape, as well as I, right? And so in some browsers, they conform perfectly to the spec that you see in Chromium. Some browsers, they make modifications. So from a development perspective, as a vendor living in that extension footprint, you have to spend a lot of money and a lot of development cycles keeping up with every single build, and not just every single build of Chromium, the browser-specific builds of Chromium, Brave, Edge, Chrome and on and on it goes to make sure that your extension is still viable and your features haven't been deprecated. It's a it's a tough challenge. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the BYOD use case because this is something that's been coming up on the weekly show lately, just about how BYOD is just a glaring risk, really. Um, uh, sadly, and you know, we're seeing threat actors go after people's work from home uh, setups. So what's the advantage in running an instrumented browser or you know, an enterprise specific browser on a user's um, you know, work from home device, for example, right? Now you, you mentioned uh, one advantage, which is that you can essentially do some you know, endpoint integrity checking a la, you know, it's kind of like dropping a light EDR agent onto the uh, user's computer. But you know, what, are there other advantages? Because I'd imagine there would be. Yeah, so, and this is, you know, this is where security and, and having security built into you know, your version of a browser makes perfect sense because for example, an extension won't play here because if you load an extension in my BYOD browser at home, meaning on my personal device, how do I know which traffic of that extension is going to really be visible and govern? So by providing our own browser directly to that BYOD or that unmanaged device, we can theoretically or, or think about it from a methodology perspective, we can literally say island is the place you go to work. If you want to go to Netflix, if you want to go to Amazon, if you want to go browser, Go to your healthcare, your personal financials. You can open Chrome Edge or any of the other browsers on the system. But when you go to work, it's within Island and it's protected and it's governed and there's policy and there's visibility to all of your actions. But the wonderful thing that the enterprise browser gives you in this unmanaged device world is we come onto the device assuming it's already compromised. And so from a security perspective, we can look at BYOD devices and say, all right, there's a high percentage of likelihood that there's already some form of a keystroke logger or something that's pulling telemetry either out of memory or out of, you know, actual hardware keystroke, keystrokes out of the OS. So from Island's perspective, we built in all of those anti-tampering preventions. So you can't grab memory, you can't grab the session cookies off of both. Um, off of the file system and drop them in Chrome or any other browser. Well, instead of them. saying you can't, let's say it's difficult. More difficult. 
<laughs> it's, um, so we can we can prevent or ex- make it extremely difficult to pull session cookies or pull things out of memory. Um, but more, but I mean, this is something the major browser manufacturers have worked on as well, right? Like, you know, we, again, we, we spoke about this recently uh, on the show, like the days of landing on a Windows box and then just dumping the session cookies, like those days are over. It is hard now. Like, how have you made it harder? Um, so it's not as hard in Chromium as you would think. So there are things out there like Chrome Pass, which is a free tool to download. And if you actually run it on your version of Chrome, it'll expose all of the passwords as well as all of the cookies that are actually in the system. Um, so it is actually not difficult. What we've done from an island's perspective is we've actually, we have the ability to layer a different encryption methodology entirely over those session tokens, over anything that gets written to the local file system. And that could even be bring your own key, right? So you could literally say organization, this is how I want to encrypt this. And so from that perspective, we can mask all the cookies. We can make those so that if you pull them off the file system, you would literally need the keys to be able to do something. So um, just walk us through the, the the nuts and bolts of the browser. It's a, it, it is a, I mean, I'm, I imagine listeners would have gathered this by now, but it is, um, you know, essentially your version of Chromium, right? It is. So it, it is our version of Chromium. And so, you know, from that, we have a team that focuses on the core of Chromium. They're focused on, you know, making sure that we have full platform support. So if you name a compute platform, we're on it. Windows and Mac, full version support, as well as four flavors of Linux, Chromebook, iOS, and Android. Um, this team also supports the lifecycle management of it. And so what I like to tell folks is when you think about Island, what we've done as much as we have built security controls and capabilities, as well as a lot of productivity capabilities directly in the browser, we've also engineered it from the perspective of bringing it back to the enterprise grade, right? So things like updates. Every browser is an evergreen, meaning it can reach up and grab its own update and install as they become available. We give you that management back. So now you can dictate which users get the browser updates first, which ones have browser provisions pinned. So we could treat it like an enterprise application from the ground up. Now, having this version of Chromium, once we get installed there, everything is done from user context. So we don't require elevated privileges to install. So that's why we're great on unmanaged devices like contractors and PYODs. You don't have to go and get that admin. So you can run this just yeah. in a user context. That is 100%. actually a big deal, right? Like that that's yeah. cool. I did not realize um, that, that you were doing that. Um, that's, you know, I, I imagine a lot of listeners just went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's what um, makes it really viable on those unmanaged devices, right? Because you don't have to go and, 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 and say- And can you no. ensure that, you know, you because you spoke earlier about how like you can just have, you know, these BYOD users accessing enterprise apps through the browser. Like how do you ensure that they're actually using your browser to access those enterprise apps? This is something we call browser enforcement. So there's there's uh, literally there's a dozen methods to do this. It could be everything from header injection all the way down to actually controlling the other extensions, other browsers on the file system. But the most common way we achieve this is by actually integrating to your um, conditional access capabilities in your IDP or your um, Microsoft Director of Services. So think of it as a conditional sign-on policy that says. When user Brian goes to app Salesforce, he should only uh, he should only originate out of an island certified browser with an encrypted JSON web token that's tied to my tenant. So we actually yeah. can act, take the browser and make it another factor of authentication and then enforce state. No, no. I mean, that sounds like what you'd want out of what you're calling an enterprise browser, right? Wow, yes. it actually integrates with enterprise stuff. Weird. Um, so look, one of the big stumbling blocks, right? One of the big costs when people try to do this sort of thing is trying to keep up with the constant flow of updates into yeah. 
you know, chromium, right? So this is an expensive and, and uh, you know, pretty full-on undertaking. What's your turnaround like when a patch gets committed to chromium before it's, it's with your customers? Because this is something that I imagine people might feel a little bit uneasy about. Yeah. So this is exactly what I was saying, which is we're giving you control back. So we are part of the same programs as, as Google and Microsoft. So we get the same access to patches and programmatic changes. Chromium updates by itself once a month. Um, so that's just the natural cadence to Chromium. And then of course there's emergency health fixes. We are on the exact same schedule. So we will release the same day as a Google and Microsoft. But what's different about what we're providing is within our management construct, you can control when that update's released, which is same day, who gets it, how fast do they get it? Do you want to de delay it a day? Do you want to delay your high risk users? Or, you know, we have financial services that really don't want their brokerage and their customer, the tip of the organization to be the bleeding edge. So they may roll them slower. So we give you all of that um, granularity of control. All right. Well, Brian Kenyon, thank you so much for joining us to pitch us on Ireland. This is the first thing we're doing with Ireland. I think we've got a few more things coming up uh, over the year. Very interesting conversation. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Brian Kenyon there. Big thanks to him for that. And uh, we're going three for three for .io domains this week because you can find them at island.io. Three sponsors, three .io domains. Sign of the times. Uh, I hope you enjoyed all of these uh, pitches and this, uh, this edition of Snake Oilers. Uh, and uh, I'll be back soon with more podcasts on Risky Biz. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.